Our scripture reading is in Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. In the Pew Bibles, that's page 978. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. To the Lord. Clearly, singing to one another and making melody to the Lord. Clearly, when we come together, we have a job to do together. One of those jobs is to sing. One of the ways we stay together for good is singing. So, when you set out to find a church, maybe Trinity is your home, maybe you're exploring the opportunity for Trinity to be your home church, I wonder if. Musical style is a ruling criteria for you in your selection of a church. Uh, when you were deciding on whether or not to come to Trinity, was our instrumentation and song selection really important to you before you settled on Trinity as your home? Maybe you ran your choice of a church through a grid, something like this question. What is the ideal musical style for a church? What is the ideal musical style for a church? Like if Jesus was on the hunt right now for a church, what do you think the ruling criteria for Jesus would be when it comes to music? Should I get the handheld? Okay. Uh, so if Jesus was uh, church hunting, what would it be? Would he try to find the church with the organ? Maybe Jesus loves the unpredictability of jazz chord progressions, and that's what he would pick. Or maybe he prefers the ancient chants of the medieval monks. Or how about the modern... Uh, worship rock anthems? Who knows what Jesus would look for? And while all those things that I just mentioned, I think, uh, as various styles and different options at churches, are worth considering in your church hunt, I don't think any of them would be like the ruling criteria for Jesus. Today we're going to discuss the first thing Jesus would look for when it comes to music in a church. Uh, I don't think he would look for a defining style. I think he'd listen for a defining sound. Not style, but sound. So this is a better question, I think, and it's a question I think Jesus would look for. What is the ideal musical sound for our church? It's only a slight, slight tweak, but it is an expression of priority. Style speaks to instrumentation and ornamentation, but uh, uh, sound speaks to the, the noise that fills the room. At Trinity, we prioritize sound over style, though we do think style is important. What should be the defining, defining sound of corporate musical worship at Trinity Community Church? What noise should fill this room? Here's the answer, I think. The people of Trinity singing. What is the ideal musical sound for our church? It's this, the people of Trinity singing. So listen, we do not have the biggest church in Abington right now, by far. But we can have the biggest worship team in Abington because ours is like 200 strong, all right? Trinity has a gigantic worship team. It's called the congregation. That's us, all right? You didn't know it, but you walked right into the worship team this morning. Why is this? Because Ephesians 5, the way it was written, was written to be read to the church in Ephesus. So it's being read publicly. 
read out loud to a whole church, not just the worship leaders. And what does it say? Look at verse 19. It says, to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to your heart with the Lord. So I, I think singing is something that we have grown accustomed to in the church, right? We associate singing of some sort with church gatherings. It's so commonplace, I think, that it becomes an afterthought. But singing is more than just an ancient church tradition. It's the way that we stay together for good. It's one of the ways. So we've been on this train together for good for a few weeks now, right? We've learned that communion, the Lord's table, is more than a snack. We are more than a crowd, but a community. We're more than a show. Justin led us through that in Hebrews 10. Last week, we learned that we are more than a huddle. Uh, we gather to scatter. And this week, we continue to circle around that same theme, theme of being together for good. When we gather to sing, it is more than a melody and more than just some music. It's a primary way we war against the evil one. Now, maybe you don't think of yourself as a singer this morning. You're not particularly a gifted vocalist. But I want to gently push back on that just a little bit this morning. Uh, there are over 50 direct commands for us to sing in the scriptures. And singing, is mentioned, singing itself is mentioned over 400 times throughout the Bible. And if you don't like singing your, about your love for God in this life, you may not be ready for the next life where we will spend an eternity together singing and shouting the praises of the Lamb who has set us free. That's what the next life is going to be characterized by. So if you're put off by it in this one, you got another thing coming to you in the next one. So I, I wonder if the aim of the lyrics that we sing together on Sundays might surprise you. What is the aim? What is the goal? What is the purpose of our lyrics? We sing not just to God, but also to each other. Did you see that in our text? We sing in two directions. It says to sing to one another, and then it also says to sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. I know we like the phrase, something like, let's sing to an audience of one. That's a very popular phrase. But Ephesians 5, the text that we're in today, is proof positive that one of the primary aims of corporate worship, that's what we're up to today, collective worship, is meant to be horizontal and not just vertical. We gather today and we probably tell ourselves, oh, we're going to worship God, and we are. We're singing to God. But our voices joined together in song are meant to build each other up not simply have our own personal, private encounter with God. Can worship mean closing my eyes and having a special moment with hands raised, blocking out everyone else around me and singing to God? Yes, it can totally mean that. And if you enjoyed that this morning, praise God. That's really sweet. I've had many profound moments like that myself, sitting where you're sitting or standing where you're sitting uh, and, and enjoy the Lord in those ways. But a spirit-filled Singing church should be aware of others, the others around you, while you are singing. Every once in a while, I'll do something kind of weird. <clears throat> I kind of do it subtly, so you may have not noticed me before, but I will turn around and just look at people when they're singing, all right? I want to sing to them and not just in front of them. That's on purpose. I want to sing to y'all and not just sing in front of y'all. We should all sing to each other and not just in front of each other, or I guess, or behind each other, right? Depending on where you're sitting. And why is this? Why? Well, let me use one of my favorite quotes by a guy named Mike Cosper. You may have heard it before. He says this, The gathering, which is what we're at right now, is unique, not as an encounter with God, since God's presence is a constant comfort and help to the Christian. 
It's unique as an encounter with God, intensified among the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God. It's communal and not individualistic. In other words, obviously, you can meet with God privately at any time. And that makes sense, and you should. But there's something irreplaceably special when we come together as God's people. The singing in the Sunday gathering is essential in your walk with Jesus. Cosper continues. He says, Christ in me meets Christ in you. The gathering should be a place where believers are built up and encouraged in the midst of various trials and circumstances in their lives. So when we gather together, we sing to each other. We declare the truths of the gospel to one another. Our presence and our participation is not merely for the sake of our vertical, individual relationship with God, but it's also for our brothers' and sisters' sake. When you sing, you are speaking truth and love to your church around you, and your bold confession of faith may be exactly what someone nearby needs to hear in the midst of his or her dark hours. So none of us showed up here today just to observe. We're here because there's something to do. There's something to bring. There's something to sing. According to what Kate just read, one of the things that you're here to do is to sing to the Lord and to each other. I'm not going to discuss this morning the nuances between psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that Kate read for us. There is something to that, I think, but that's a discussion for another time. I think the overarching point for Paul here is just this. It's super simple. Sing. Sing, y'all, is what he's saying. And when you sing, aim your heart and aim your lips, your lyrics, in two directions. Seek to bless the name of God and seek to encourage the people of God. Seek to bless the name of God. Seek to encourage the people of God. Well, as a little case study for what this might could look like in our church here, I want to take us back to the OG hymn book, the original hymn book, the book of Psalms. It is inspired. It is beautiful. It is instructive. Uh, we should sing the Psalms more often. Hopefully we, will, we can do that more going forward. But flip with me, if you will, to Psalm 81. Turn to Psalm 81. And while you're turning there, grab your, uh, grab your Birkenstocks. If you have some, strap them on. All right. Uh, put yourself on a dusty road outside of Jerusalem 3,000 years ago. It's fall. You can see smoke rising out in the distance. You can smell the meat cooking. There's a palpable excitement in the city that you can feel. There's an energy about the place. The town is packed, like way more than normal. It's like New York City at New York, uh, on New Year's. Uh, but as you get closer to the city, it's not just people you see. As you get closer, you notice there are tents, tents everywhere. Like for as far as your eyes can see, all you can see is tents and people and buildings and a whole bunch of first century meat smokers, all right? It's the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. Special celebration. This was the most epic of all the holidays on the Hebrew calendar. It's like our Christmas, where it caps off the year with just a wild, beautiful, memorable celebration. Every Jew looked forward to this festival, the Feast of Booths. I read somewhere that the rabbis of the time used to say that one who had not witnessed the celebration of this feast didn't even know what true joy really was. That's what characterized the city during this week. The book of Amos tells us that no work at all was to be done during this week, on this day, I should say. And we found out in 1 Samuel 20 that a special meal was to be shared by all in attendance in the city on this day. So during the Feast of Booths, God's people gathered in Jerusalem for a week to remember and celebrate their miraculous 
deliverance from Egypt, which is one of those uh, stories early on in the scriptures, uh, if you're familiar with it. So conjure up all of the emotion of July 4th, the spread at Thanksgiving, and the, the, the romance and the celebration of Christmas to get an accurate picture of the ethos in the city on this day. That's the setting of Psalm 81, what it is written into. And so let's read that together quickly now. I'll start in verse 1. It says, Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. For it is the statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your burden uh, I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress, you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him, and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of the wheat and with honey from the rock that I would satisfy you. So the focus of this celebration in, in Psalm 81 in the original hymn book for God's people was the focus was the redemption from Egypt and of God's protection and sustenance in the wilderness when they did not live in homes, but they lived in tents, or we might call them booths. That's why it was called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's because you can imagine these people traipsing through the wilderness for 40 years. They had to build up these tents or these booths many, many times. This celebration in Jerusalem was a, uh, was a remembrance of that time. Uh, and we won't get into it, but we know this was the Feast of Booths, um, or like the Feast of Tabernacles, because of what it says there in verse 3, when it's talking about all that new moon stuff, uh, that is like a calendar tip-off to what uh, the celebration was centered around then. And it's not much different for us today uh, as modern Christians. Of course, no time is wrong to praise God. We should praise Him all the time. But just like with these Jews, there are some times appointed for us to meet and join together in praising God. Most obviously on Sundays, right? It's partly why we gather. That's why we came into this room for this very reason today. And I think Psalm 81 in part speaks to some of the oughts, some of the shoulds of what to do when God's people gather together to celebrate his work. Asaph wrote this as a sort of like a liturgy uh, for the people when they gathered for the Feast of Booze in Jerusalem, an order of worship. But there are certainly some ideas that can carry over from that Feast of Booths into our every day or our every week, our weekly Sunday gatherings as we celebrate God's provision too. So, so number one this morning, what we learned from this is to make lots of Godward noise. Make lots of Godward noise. You can see that in the first couple of verses there. All kinds of instrumentation and all kinds of voices being raised. God's people are a loud people, especially when they come together. Now, again, maybe you've always thought of this singing thing as optional for you as a Christian when you gather with God's people. Maybe you don't think of yourself as into singing very much or into shouting very much. Or maybe you don't think of yourself as particularly musical this morning. 
Maybe you prefer to mumble or to mouth the words when we're singing or reading the words of Scripture on screen. And they're like, fake it till you make it, you know? Um, But check this out. Look at verses 4 and 5. The loudness is a statute, a rule, a decree. So God is mandating noisiness in his people here. Mandating it. Uh, Look at it in verses 1 to 3. Sing aloud, shout for joy, raise a song, and play a whole bunch of instruments. God loves loud people, all right? God loves loud people. All you extroverts can say amen, and the introverts can say, oh me, right? Have you considered the fact that one of the things God One of the things God wants from you when you gather together with God's people is to raise the roof and praise to him. I don't know if you've ever gotten the chance to see a Broadway play before, but one of the funnest parts of the evening, I think, is when the play is over. Uh, Not because I didn't enjoy the play. (laughs) I actually do enjoy Broadway plays very much. Uh, But I love the moment when the final curtain falls. Uh, I enjoy that because of what is about to happen next after the curtain falls it stays down for a moment while the fi- uh, the actors in the final scene exit the stage and then the curtain rises again and one by one the more obscure actors come out onto the stage for a bow in front of the audience and the applause always begins pretty mildly i think these people all the people that played like the background parts and did an amazing job but they weren't featured they weren't like center stage But the applause always begins to crescendo there toward the end, bit by bit, as actors with the most stage time come to center stage. And they take their bow, and it culminates in one or two, like the the main stars of the show coming out to center stage and taking their final bow. By that time, usually if the play was good, the audience is erupting in applause. Usually they're standing and catcalling and whistling. Uh, and, And it's only natural, right, that the actor who played... Simba or the, the Phantom or Hamilton or whatever gets the most applause while the more obscure actors get a little less applause. I think our weeks should take the same kind of trajectory. When we live our normal Monday to Saturday lives, there should be plenty of time to celebrate and enjoy the Lord throughout the week. But Sundays, Sundays are a different deal altogether. Sundays are like the crescendo of your week. When God's people come together to make a lot of noise in his honor and stir up faith in each other's hearts. It's like when those final two actors take center stage. That's what our Sundays are, when it gets the loudest and the boldest and the most beautiful. You think it's kind of strange, excuse me, kind of strange that God commands joyful singing? How can you command joy in someone? If I I told you right now, feel joy. Like, Like that's, that's, that's impossible. I cannot command that. And God commands it here, though. What do we do with that? I wonder if any of us have ever thought of music as an overflow of joy rather than a prescription for it. An overflow of joy rather than a prescription for it. I think that's usually how we think of it. But singing can be an overflow of joy, but it can also be a prescription for joy, too. I rarely think of singing in this order. So on a Sunday morning, if you're if you're just not feeling it. And I kind of I kind of wasn't feeling it this morning, to be honest with you. There's something some things going on in my own heart that I'm wrestling with. I'm not feeling it. But w- what is the prescription for moments or mornings like that when you're not feeling it? Instead of waiting until you feel the urge to sing with joy, follow the command of singing and wait to see 
what God might do to bring you joy in the midst of whatever it is that you're wrestling with. There's a theory, and I think it's a good one, that Psalm 81 was penned when the Israelites were in exile from their homeland. So they're not, they're not at home. Uh, they're in captivity. They've been taken from their rhythms. They've been taken from their loves. They've been taken from their families, and they've been put down into an unknown land, unable to worship and function as they, as they have been for their entire lives. And yet here, even in the midst of that, God is still commanding loud, joyful singing. By grace, this must somehow be possible. When we are in an uncomfortable position and, and out of sorts and in a really dry season, it must be possible to still sing with joy. There is a duty in this psalm to delight, a duty to delight in God, and it's something that we shouldn't miss. I know not everyone has the same personality in here, but I wonder what it would look like for your personality to stretch toward loudness. What would it look like for your personality to stretch toward loudness? Maybe it's actually like singing for once. Maybe you don't sing when you come in here. Stretch and sing a little bit, all right? Maybe it's like to shout, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Something like that. Maybe it's singing with full heart and full throat, right? You ever done that? Just let it loose? What does it look like for you to stretch towards loudness? Maybe it's clapping. Now, if you come from a background like me where clapping was like uh, not looked well upon in a Sunday worship gathering, maybe you're uncomfortable with that. Let me just say this. I think I said this last week, but let me just say this again. The clapping is not really aimed at the people that are up here. No more than when you say amen because you say amen all the time here in our church. Uh, you, uh, you don't, we don't have a very amen-y kind of church, but um, no more than your amen would be aimed at me. It's aimed at the truth, right? And when we clap, we aim our claps at the truth, not the people. Uh, it's okay to celebrate God in, in those ways. Um, we think our musicians are awesome, but we are not clapping for them. We are clapping for the redeeming king, Right? Like when the Eagles suit up here in a few months, just a few months away, the stadium is going to erupt at every touchdown that is scored. There's going to be clapping, high-fiving, screaming. But when we sing about our blood-bought freedom wrought on the cross of Calvary, our little stadium here ought to erupt too, right? How much more ought it to erupt than down the streets at the link? So why don't we high-five after singing? Curtain torn in two, dead are raised to life, finish the victory cry? We could high-five after that. Come on, somebody. Yeah. Why can't we just pump our fists when we sing? Yeah. You're clapping for me. You're not clapping for me. We're clapping for the Lord. We pump our fists when we sing. I know how the story ends. We will be with you again. It's okay to respond physically to spiritually amazing truths. There is no decorum when we're talking about the difference between our eternal souls being plunged into eternal death or being rescued and forever blessed. But this idea is radically different than so many churches today who gravitate more toward production than they do actual worship. The show happens up here while the rest of us just watch, right? But the true measure of our success in musical worship is not measured by what happens up here. It's why it's about it's measured by what happens out there. Let me say that again. The true measure of our success in musical worship is not measured by what happens on stage, 
but, but, but by what happens in the pews. We don't want to be a church guilty of what Tim Challies describes here. He says, keep your eyes focused on the front and you can't help but be impressed. Look beside you and behind you and you can't help but be concerned. But I want to take a second to actually commend you here, Trinity Community Church. You are a great singing church, really. I've heard from countless people when they go, for a few weeks, go away for a few weeks, whether it be for vacation or just travel or for work or whatever, and sometimes they'll go to another church and I'll ask them about it. Usually I'll say, what do they do well uh, that we could learn from and improve in? Um, but often they'll say, man, it was good, but it wasn't Trinity. And they're not talking about the preaching, I promise you, okay? They're talking usually about your singing. Your voice linked with others in this room carries not just you, but others around you to the very throne of Jesus. It sustains them in dark moments and holds them up. So great job. Keep it up. You're doing really well. You make lots of noise, Godward noise, and it's a really sweet experience. When God's people come together, they make a lot, lots of noise. Sometimes the noise comes before the joy, but I don't think that's the normal experience. Usually this noise is fueled by something, some kind of deep set joy in our hearts and souls. But just telling you to be loud is like telling a car with no fuel to go. It doesn't work like that. It's like telling a sailboat with no wind to sail. It doesn't work like that. So what is the wind that is blowing into the sails of loud saints? It's number two this morning, God's deliverance. Remember God's past deliverance. So there's a transition of speakers here between verses five and six. We go from Asaph, who's the dude who penned this psalm, to hearing from God himself starting in verse six. And so here we find the reason God calls his people together, to remember together. We remember together. And to remember what? What's well, this from Exodus 1? should be able to follow along on screen, I think. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt, and he said to his people, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, and let us, uh, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, they built for Pharaoh store cities, the store cities Pithom and Ramses. Now, if you look down back at your Bible in Psalm 81, verse 6, you'll see that that fits right in with the context of Exodus 1. It says this, I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. So all those trips down to the rock quarry to load up their baskets, fill them with stones, and then return back to these cities to build these storehouses. Think about those trips over and over and over again. Why is Asaph calling on them to remember that? Like, that is not a happy memory at all. What a terrible time in their nation's history when they were exiled. Day after day, month after month, year after year, hard, hard, forced labor. But a few verses later, we can come to understand what the value was of remembering their extraordinary burden that the Israelites had to bear up under. So what happens a few verses later in Exodus 2. During those many days, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant. So if you know this story at all, you'll know that God nudges Moses onto center stage in the next scene, and deliverance is miraculously won, and they are taken out from exile or they're taken out from Egypt, Egypt, excuse me. 
So, so the argument is this so far in Psalm 81, all right? Sing loud, shout loud, play your instruments loud, uh, and rejoice because God delivered you from your oppression. That's the point. Make lots of noise because you've been delivered. Their worship was to be fueled by remembrance. Worship fueled by remembrance. Really, this is all that our Sundays are bent toward, even now. Remembering. We gather to remember things that happened thousands of years ago. We gather to remember that we need Jesus. It's one thing to need Jesus. It's a whole other beautiful thing to need Jesus together in song. Needing Jesus together in song. It's our togetherness in song that lends to the sweetness. I had a former boss visit uh, a church gathering here a couple of years ago. She's not a Christian, uh, but a couple of us here at the church at the time worked or had worked for that company where she was my boss. She sat right back there in that corner, and I was talking with her afterwards about her experience here and just catching up with her a little bit. I hadn't seen her in a while. Um, and she told me that she was moved to tears while we were all singing. I don't remember what it was that we were singing. And she doesn't know our songs. She doesn't hold our beliefs. But she was moved. Why is that? What was driving that for her? Because a bunch of us were together in being needy. And that is a moving thing. When we collectively set our sights and our hopes on this one man, it is a moving thing to hear a whole group of saints desperately reaching out and hanging on to our Christ. Desperate people praising a worthy God and bearing each other up because we're singing to one another too. Don't underestimate the collective power of our joint voices, even on the hearts of people who aren't Christians. It's meaningful to them. Now, our singing about deliverance will only be as sweet as our recollection of what we have been delivered from. That's a mouthful. Let me say it again. Our deliverance, our singing about deliverance, will only be as sweet as our recollection of what we have been delivered from. Recovering from a cold and recovering from cancer are worlds apart. We throw parties for the one and we shrug off the other. Why? Because the circumstances surrounding cancer are bleak and deadly but not usually so with a cold. So if you haven't considered recently just how dark your heart was, is, just how certain the status of your future, the future of your soul was before you met Jesus, take a second right now to remind yourself, you didn't have a cold, you had cancer, and it was bleak. You had a death sentence, no treatments, no hope. That is why we never tire of taking time to remember every single week what happened on an obscure hillside 2,000 years ago when we Christians were freed from the oppression of the cruelest of masters. If I could just speak to non-Christians in the building real quick, if, if there are some in here this morning. I need to hear this from a heart of love. If you are a human, and you are, you are lost. Even if you don't feel like it this morning, you are lost and you are ruined. You don't just need to be improved, just like a little tweak of the dial. You don't need to just have your rough edges sanded off. It's way worse than that. And not just for you, for me too. We're all in this troubling position. And I, I don't know how to say that any less offensively than that. That may feel and sound offensive to you this morning. But you are, we all are, going to be judged for our sin. Unless, 
thus we are redeemed. So here's the crazy thing. Just like Jesus responded to the Israelites in their pleas for deliverance from Egypt, like we read from Exodus a few minutes ago, just like he responded to them, he'll respond to us too. He'll listen to you. Not because of you, not because there's anything, uh, you know, worthy in and of yourself, but because of something that happened 2,000 years ago, something that we gather to remember every week. The road to celebrating your amazing deliverance is paved by stones of gospel remembrance. If you want to really be fueled and filled with joy on Sundays as we sing together, remember your plight. Remember what you were. Remembering the cross and pinning all of your hopes to that stick sticking in the middle of the ground on the side of a hill and saying, if it ain't Jesus, I got no hope. That will raise the roof in a room like this. If you're not a Christian, he will save you, friend. He'll save you to the uttermost. He'll deliver you. And every day after that day of salvation, it will be a privilege to cast your mind to Calvary, to remember what was done for you and to sing of it at the top of your lungs. Remembrance of deliverance fuels worship. And so we've, talking about, we've, we've talked about what to do when God's people gather, make lots of noise based on your remembrance of what God has done. And there's one other piece of worship here too that isn't necessarily directly in keeping with singing this morning, but it does show up here in this psalm and I wanted to talk about it. So I'm going to move off of singing here for just a second. Number three this morning, listen to God's nourishing voice. Make lots of noise. Remember God's deliverance and then listen to God's voice. It all begins there in verse 8. He says, Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me. And the trend continues. Look at verse 8. He says, Hear. Verse 8. Listen. Verse 10. Open your mouth wide, which is just another way of saying to God, look, or God saying, receive from me. Open your mouth wide like a baby bird would open its mouth wide and receive the the worm from its mom. Open your mouth wide and receive. Uh, Verse 11. Listen. Verse 13. Listen. So it's important to note that all this listening is always with a trajectory and a posture toward change. The point of all this listening in Psalm 81, the uh, uh, point of all of it there is, is tagged down there in verse 13. It's this. In verse 13 it says that we would walk in his ways. This is a critical part of gathered worship. Listening for the purpose of transformation. We listen for the purpose of transformation. I've heard... Plenty of us, I'm guilty of this, of this too, talk about like the music part of our gatherings as the worship. Uh, I'm guilty of that too, and that's cool. I get it. it. It is worship. I understand why we talk about it like that. But once the last chord of the guitar or the piano or whatever rings out, the worship isn't taking a siesta. The sermon isn't a breather between two sets of worship. Church, a massive part of gathered worship is when your mouth is shut and your ears are perked and this book is open. The worship doesn't cease between the two sets of worship, musical worship. And listen, this might sound like a job security thing for me, okay? Well, if the budget gets tight, don't you forget that I'm not going to be the first one to go, okay? Uh, It's not that what I'm doing is more important here, whoever's up here preaching. It's nothing like that at all. It's just a reflection of what we see in Psalm 81 and our desperate need to put ourselves into a listening posture. So a fundamental part of our worship is pushing out the voice of the world and inviting in God's voice through his word. Push out the voice of the world, invite God's voice in through his word. And so hear this. 
listening is not accidental. It's not accidental. You don't stumble into listening. It, it takes some work. You know this. I know this too. It's not something that happens to you. It's something that you must participate in. This is unnatural for me. I'm not good at sitting still and just being quiet enough to hear God talk. But I think part of being able to listen to God on Sundays is a reflection of whether or not you're taking time to hear him on other days. Can you sit still and hear from God on Sundays? If not, I wonder if it's because you're not taking time to listen to him on other days. Now, many of us in here are just hitting like the stride of our careers right now. You have needy kids. You're extraordinarily busy. You're in high demand. But I think it's interesting that if you trace the life of, life of Jesus, if you look at it really closely, the busier and the more in demand he became, the more he withdrew to quiet places to just be with the Father and listen. But I'm afraid that for most of us, the opposite is true. When we get over busy, when the demands pile up, the first thing to go is that quiet space to listen to Jesus. We don't like to just sit in the quiet and listen, do we? We have a hard time taking the time to let our souls catch up with our bodies. Turn off the TV, turn off the music, turn off the podcast. Embrace the quiet. Just listen. Open this thing up and see what the Lord might say through it. There are real-life consequences to getting too busy to listen to the Lord. It's no small price to pay to leave listening to this book to chance. In fact, it's one of the most frightening concepts in the whole Bible, I think. And detailed here in verses 11 and 12, look at it. The Lord says, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. If that doesn't shake you a little bit, Christian, I don't know what will. God abandoning, abandoning you to do what is right in your own eyes. Whatever is right in your own eyes isn't good enough. Besides that, it doesn't work. What is best in our own eyes never works. It only ever ends up in division. Why is our world so jacked up right now? Why is cancer Cancer, cancel culture. Why is cancel culture a thing? Why can't humanity hear one another talking? Even though we're shouting at the top of our lungs at one another, it's because it's every man for himself. Everyone's doing what they think is right. Everyone is paving their own path to peace, and all roads lead to hell. Except for one. You could never pave the way to peace with God. You don't have the resources you don't have the talent. You don't have the charisma. You don't have the money. You can't get there. So for God to abandon you, abandon you to your own way, that is frightening. Humanity must stop to listen, to hear the word of God and to walk in his ways. If there's someone here today who feels stuck, like you're, like you're spinning your wheels, you may be stuck in some kind of sinful rut. I don't know what it might be. Maybe you're sexually sinning and you don't know how to stop, but you want to. Maybe you feel stuck in a drinking habit or struggling with laziness or indifference to the needs of people around you, maybe your family or something. Would you be willing to ask for help? I'm just as needy as you are, brother, sister. And there is help for all of us who stop. Take a breath, take a beat, open up the book and just listen. There's grace for all of us no matter your situation. 
the first step toward this help and health is by bending our ears to the right place. God is not to be trifled with. God is not to be ignored. He's to be listened to, but not in like a shame, shame kind of way. Oh, it's way better than that. Look how this thing ends. Look at verse 14. Subdued enemies, and then verse 16, nourished souls, filled souls. We, we should listen, not just because we have to, not just because we're supposed to. It's better than that. He's got something to offer that's so amazing for us. Verse 10, he's not just jealous for our affection. He wants to fill our souls up until they are as content as you, are, you and I are after our Thanksgiving meal. Look at, look at that at the end of verse 10. He says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And we just, we just don't believe God when he says stuff like this. But if we would, if we would open our mouths up wide, he would fill it and satisfy us. What if we came to this book with our mouths open wide and ingested this word? What if we opened our ears wide to the Lord by listening to him through it? What if we came to the rock expecting not just water, but honey. Do you see that in verse 16? Honey coming from the rock. God is in the business of pleasant surprises. I mean, water from a rock is one thing, but honey from a rock, that is beautiful. That is delicious. Be intrigued by the deliciousness of God's provision through his word. He wants to nourish our souls in surprising ways, and he does this through our listening ears. Now, when this psalm was written, God's people were like a national political group, the people of Israel. And if they just have committed to listening to his words and following his ways, he was committing to, to free them. But on this side of the cross, it's different, right? We're not promised deliverance from our political enemies or even our national enemies because we're not that as Christians. We're a spiritual nation with spiritual enemies. God promises deliverances deliverance from worse enemies than Democrats or Republicans, worse enemies than Al-Qaeda or COVID. He promises deliverances from hell and death, humanity's greatest fears and greatest enemies. You want to know how to make it to the end, still believing with a soul that's still alive, even though your body might be closing in on death? How do you go through that season? You got to have a white-knuckled death grip on this book. Open your ears to listen to it. Open your mouth to sing it. So as we close, remember this. Trinity's lyrics should be characterized by gospel deliverance. That's what we want to sing about, our deliverance. But Trinity's voices should be aimed at a two-way audience, vertical and horizontal. So let me just remind you one more time that a simple melody you sing multiplies exponentially. It's more than a melody. It's how you screw your courage and my courage to the sticking post. It's how we survive. It's how we stay together for good. Sometimes I'll lean over to Miriam and tell her that I'm just imagining her dad singing and that I cannot wait to sing that song, whatever song it is that we're singing with him. I thought that a little bit this morning when we sang It Is Well. He knows full well that it is well right now. If you don't know us, Miriam's father passed away unexpectedly a few years ago. And usually right after I say something like that, we're both overwhelmed with some kind of emotion. I just want to say it's okay to be emotional. Andy Crouch says, singing may be the one human activity that most perfectly combines heart, 
mind, soul, and strength. I think he's right. That's why our singing brings us to tears sometimes. It's okay to be thin-hearted in a thick-skinned world. Let the truth get to you. I want you to know, just like on a personal note, that over the past year, that your singing on Sundays has been more than a melody I hear. It's been a lifeline that I actually seek and I look forward to. I was with my counselor or therapist or whatever you're supposed to call them these days a few months ago, and he was asking me about like, what, is, what is good in your life right now, uh, what I look forward to. And at that particular, in that particular season, I had a hard time coming up with things. I was just, I was struggling, uh, a little depressed, a little anxious. And the only thing I could come up with was Sundays. And this is not just like pastor speak. It was just like needy Christian speak. Uh, in that depressing season, I just, I, I did look forward to Sundays. And it wasn't because of the preaching, I promise. It was because of your preaching through your singing. It was like this one thing that buoyed me in a season of tumult. You probably had no idea that you were throwing out a life-saving lifeline to me when you were singing at the top of your lungs, in Christ alone my hope is found. But you were. And I want you to know that your vibrant singing revitalized my soul each week. It poured just a little bit of fuel back in the tank to keep going. And I bet there's someone or two or three or ten of us here this morning that needs a refill. Your singing is not just a melody. It's not just a set of notes on a page. They're more than melodies. They are lifelines. This is why Jesus tells us to sing to one another. So next week, when you're strapping on your Birkenstocks, first, don't. Um, And second, open your mouth to make some noise. Open your eyes to the glories of Calvary. Open your ears to the Word of God. When we gather together, we have something to do. To throw out lifelines through the singing of God's gospel deliverance for us. And take a few moments here and pray these truths into our bones, then we will gather around this table. God, thank you for the reminder today. Thank you, God, um, that you remind us that we need to listen to your voice. God, I pray that you would give us a desire to do that. I pray, God, that we would make time to do that when we don't feel like it. God, as we listen to you, um, we will remember your past deliverance and your goodness to us, God. Um, So thank you for that. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would fill us with thankfulness for what you have done and and the hope that you promise us in the future. God, um, from that, um, joyful singing should come forth. Um, So thank you. Thank you that we can do that together. Um, Thank you, Lord, that we are commanded to do it when we don't feel like doing it. Thank you, Lord, that we can encourage one another by doing it when we feel like it or when we don't. Um, God, I pray that you would help us to bless you and encourage others through our singing, um, that we would war against the evil one. Um, God, help us to enjoy singing together and make it for your glory. Amen.